Welcome to On the Ballot with Ballotpedia, where we take a closer look at the week's top political stories. Ballotpedia connects people to politics by providing neutral, nonpartisan, and reliable information on our government, how it works, and where it's headed. We're here to give you the facts so you can form your own opinion. I'm Victoria Rose, and thanks for being with us. Today, we'll be unpacking the August 9th primary results and taking a look at the track records of state legislative incumbents. Joining me now from South Dakota to break down the week's headlines is staff writer Doug Kreneisel. Hey, Doug, how's it going? It is going well, Victoria. Thanks for having me. So were you up late this week covering election results? Yeah, I mean, it was nice being in the same time zone as uh, the Wisconsin races. That's way easier than when we're waiting for polls to close in like Washington. And I can't even imagine what it's going to be like when Hawaii holds their primaries. Well, I heard when you're not inputting election results, you have a fun hobby of playing the accordion. Is this true? It, this is this is very true. I, I do. I do play a mean accordion. Maybe we could have you record a new intro sometime. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I channel my channel my inner Weird, Weird Al. Al. Yeah, that's yeah, that, that's where it all came from. Got started young. Well, we'll jump right into it. We covered four primary elections this week in Minnesota, Vermont, Connecticut, and the battleground state of Wisconsin. So let's start in America's Dairyland. Can you give us the scoop on the Democratic primary for the U.S. Senate race there? The Democratic primary for U.S. Senate in Wisconsin was expected to be more competitive than it ended up being. So at the start of the race, we had candidates like Lieutenant Governor Mandela Barnes. Um, State Treasurer Sarah Godlewski, uh, a Milwaukee Bucks executive, Alex Lassery, and uh, former state representative Tom Nelson. These four were kind of occupying a lot of the media attention. But then within the last week of July, um, Nelson, Lassery, Godlewski all withdrew from the race unofficially. Their names still appeared on the ballot, but they you know dropped out and endorsed Barnes, who then ended up winning, uh, winning that uh, primary nomination with around 77% of the vote. That definitely made it an easier race than anticipated for him. Who will Barnes compete against in November? Yeah, so Barnes is going to be facing incumbent Senator Ron Johnson, a Republican, who's running for a third term. And Johnson was first elected to the Senate in 2010 when he defeated Democratic incumbent Rush Feingold. And then there was a rematch between the two in 2016, which Johnson won again. So Democrats are hoping that Barnes can you know, shake things up a little bit. Yeah, the race ratings we follow are divided on how this race will turn out in the general election. Cook Political Report has it as a toss-up. Inside Elections has it as a tilt Republican. And Sabato's Crystal Ball has it lean Republican. It is definitely one of the races that could decide who has the majority in the Senate next year. Turning our attention to state office, Democratic Governor Tony Evers is running for re-election this fall. Wisconsin Republicans held a primary this week to pick his challenger. Who was running in that race and how did it play out? Again, a number of candidates were running, but two in particular got uh, a lot of the media attention. So that'd be former Lieutenant Governor Rebecca Cleefish uh, was one of them. Um, you know, she was kind of uh, an obvious choice to run for this position. You know, she's held statewide office before. She's held elected office in the Republican Party in Wisconsin before, and she actually won or received a number of endorsements from GOP officials both in Wisconsin and outside Wisconsin, including um, uh, Vice President Mike Pence, former Governor Scott Walker, whom she served under when she was lieutenant governor. Uh, but this race was one that we've kind of seen in a, in a few uh, races around the country this year where you've got a little bit of a divide between who's endorsing whom. So like I said, you know, Vice President Mike Pence endorsed Cleefish, but former President Trump actually uh, endorsed 
um, Tim Michaels, who is a, a construction executive, U.S. Army veteran. And Michaels, like Trump, campaigned as a political outsider and promised to, quote, drain the Madison swamp in Wisconsin. And then Michaels ended up defeating Cleefish for the nomination by roughly 30,000 votes. It, it was pretty pretty tight. You know, that one, I definitely had to wait around for the race to get called. Kept me up a little bit later than the than the than the Senate primary. Yeah, those divided endorsements are an interesting story we're following. Now, over in Connecticut, we were watching the GOP primary for U.S. Senate that determined who will challenge incumbent Democratic Senator Richard Blumenthal. Who was vying for a spot opposite Blumenthal? Here in Connecticut, we had uh, two candidates who were kind of, again, occupying a lot of the media attention. You had Themis Clarides, who's an established figure in Republican circles, given her 20 plus years of experience in the state house. Then you had Republican National Committee member Leora Levy, who received an endorsement from former President Trump as well. And again, here, Trump's endorsement seems to have factored in as Levy emerged victorious, winning 50% of the vote compared to Clarity's 40%. Uh, but you know, Levy's going to have work cut out for them a little bit. Uh, you know, Richard Blumenthal, if we're looking at those race ratings, those forecasts that we were talking about in Wisconsin, this is a pretty safe Democratic seat. So it'll be something to look out for come November. Got it. Now, up in Vermont, another U.S. Senate race has our attention after Democratic Senator Patrick Leahy announced he would be retiring, creating an open seat. Leahy has served as a senator since 1975 with a total of eight terms. Race raiders also have this election as solid or safe Democratic. So after this week's primaries, who will we see face off in November for that seat? Yeah, fun fact, Patrick Leahy is also the only incumbent U.S. Senator to appear opposite Heath Ledger on the silver screen. He was in uh, The Dark Knight. Yeah. He's in a lot of Batman movies. He's in five. Actually. I saw that today when I was researching him. <laughs> yeah. So he's, uh, you know, he's had a, a distinguished well, career, I guess. Exactly. Exactly. Many years in the Senate and a number of Batman credits to his name. But in that race with his retirement, uh, you had Democratic, the, the state's lone U.S. House representative, Peter Welch, secured the primary nomination there to to run in November. And I know like at the start of this race, it was kind of up in the air, sort of how's this all going to pan out, um, especially with sort of what Vermont's other U.S. Senator, Bernie Sanders, would be doing as far as endorsements go. But Sanders endorsed Welch pretty early on in the in the primary cycle and, you know, be kind of cleared the field, received 87 percent of the vote. And then three candidates were competing for the GOP nomination, Gerald Malloy, Myers Mermel, and Christina Nolan. And Malloy narrowly defeated Nolan by around 1,300 votes. And you know, as you mentioned, most race raiders have this one as solidly Democratic. So Peter Welch is definitely the early favorite here in this uh, general election contest. And our last primary to check in on today is in Minnesota. I saw that Democratic Representative Ilhan Omar had a tighter race than expected. Yeah, that's right. And that's not really something that we had um, on our radar that we were following very closely. But uh, Omar was uh, challenged by former Minneapolis council member Don Samuels. And Samuels was pretty active in the city recently in the sort of municipal conflict over how to fund policing or where to allocate funds for policing. Samuels actually received the endorsement of Minneapolis Mayor Jacob Frey. Um, Omar ended up defeating Samuels by about two percentage points um, and will face Republican challenger Cicely Davis in November for a chance at a third term in office. So primary season isn't quite over yet. We have eight states left to go before November. Hawaii holds a rare weekend primary on August 13th. And next week on the 16th, it'll be Alaska and Wyoming's turn. 
Switching gears here, Doug, let's talk about the track record of state legislative incumbents this year. There are 6,278 legislative seats up for election in November, and 38 states have held primaries. In a broad sense, how have incumbents fared thus far this year? Across all those states, 182 state legislative incumbents have lost to primary challengers, and that's 4.6% of all incumbents who filed for re-election. And are those figures consistent across both parties? Yeah, if you break it down, you got 48 Democratic incumbents who lost in primaries. That's 3% of the Democrats who filed for re-election. Figures for Republicans are higher. So far, 134 Republicans have lost in primaries, but there are also just more Republican incumbents in general. Still, those defeated Republicans represent 6.1% of all the Republicans who filed for re-election, so at an increased rate compared to Democrats. Historically, Democratic incumbents are losing at roughly the same rate we typically see, while Republican incumbents are losing at around twice the rate they usually face. And does this have anything to do with the higher number of contested races in general? Yeah, there definitely are more incumbents facing contested primaries this year than in other recent cycles. So if you look at just these states that have held primaries so far, there have been over a thousand contested primaries featuring incumbents. Whereas if you look at these states in previous years, it's been lower around like 800 or 700. But you know that's why we want to look at percentages um, because that kind of allows us to compare things across the board. So, uh, you know, a five percent loss rate compared to a two or three percent loss rate is pretty sizable, especially when you consider the thousands of state legislative races there are. Yeah, that's a pretty big difference in that that context. What's our analysis say that reason might be? We tried to look at some of these races where incumbents lost to find unifying threads, but really these defeats have tended to be tied to issues within each respective state, uh, You know the tensions and inter-party conflicts at the state level. But there was a really thorough article David Lee with the Associated Press published last week where he actually looked at some of our data and dug into that increased rate of incumbent defeats for Republicans in particular. Uh, Lee wrote that in a number of the races that he looked into, Republican incumbents were losing to challengers who ran as more conservative on a range of issues like election policies and schooling topics. We've also talked in prior episodes about incumbent versus incumbents races this year as a result of redistricting. Do you think this has also played into the increase? Yeah, redistricting the gift that keeps on giving, unless you are the incumbents who are losing in these primaries. But it's definitely played, uh, played a role. After redistricting, you often see incumbents drawn into districts with other incumbents. So if both decide to run, they'll have to run against each other. And then this guarantees that at least one incumbent will lose. So far, we've seen 41 incumbents defeated in these incumbent versus incumbent primaries. That makes up a little over one-fifth of all of the defeats that we've seen so far. And if we exclude those defeats that were guaranteed because of redistricting, where would that leave us? The rate of incumbent defeats would definitely be lower and more comparable to previous cycles, but the rate and overall number would still be higher than what we usually see, just not quite as high as it is right now. Yeah, and that's a great point on historical comparisons. Compared to 2020, the total number of incumbents this year who lost to primary challengers is up 67%. Is this year's uptick an outlier or consistent with how we've seen state legislative incumbents perform in the past? 
We'll have to wait and see if this trend continues into the future with those few remaining states um, that haven't held primaries yet. But this definitely been the toughest primary cycle for incumbents in recent history, for sure. So right now, we are at that 4.6% loss rate in 2022. The next closest was in 2018 with a 3.3% loss rate. Uh, 2020, 2016, 2014, the loss rate didn't even cross 3%. But it's worth noting that a 4.6% loss rate, that's higher than usual, but it still means that over 90% of incumbents are either winning their primaries or just advancing straight to the general because they didn't face a primary. So this isn't upheaving legislatures across the country, but it still represents a noticeable difference. Sure. So statewide, there are thousands of incumbents and we have seen less than 200 lose in primaries. But is that the case on a state-by-state basis or are there some states where these primary defeats really might shake things up? Oh, definitely. You know, you see a state like Wisconsin, we haven't logged any primary defeats there. But then you look at a state like Idaho, that's when things get a little crazy because Idaho has had the highest rate of incumbent defeats. Roughly one quarter of every incumbent who filed for re-election lost to primary challengers. That's up from a 5% loss rate in 2020. That's a really big chunk and a big change that will definitely shake up the legislature when it reconvenes next year. Yeah, wow. 25% loss rate is pretty sizable. But in a recent episode, we were talking about how competitive certain state legislative chambers will be this year. Idaho is a pretty solidly Republican state, and Republicans really aren't at risk of losing control of their majorities there. Have we seen any interesting primary outcomes in some of the more battleground states? The best example of that would be Arizona. Right now, Republicans hold a one-seat majority in both the House and the Senate. That's the narrowest majority across every chamber holding elections this year. Around 18% of incumbents who filed for re-election in Arizona lost to primary challengers, the highest loss rate in the state for quite some time. On top of that, just under half of incumbents didn't even file for re-election this year. So those defeats and those retirements taken together means there will be a lot of newcomers winning general elections in November. Exactly. And it means that a lot of the races come November won't see that incumbency advantage playing a role, which definitely adds a layer of competitiveness to what was already going to be some of the most competitive state legislative elections this year, especially when you consider the role Arizona has been playing on the national level recently when it comes to you know, U.S. Senate races, presidential elections and things along those lines. That's all really fascinating. If our listeners are interested in learning more about this analysis, we've linked it in our show notes. Thanks for coming on and carrying the show today, Doug. Always a pleasure. Happy to be here. Hey, listeners, this is Jeff Paolet, Ballopedia's Editor-in-Chief, back with you. Here at Ballopedia, our mission is to ensure that every citizen has access to information to make informed decisions about their vote in every election. If this is a dream you share, well, you're in luck. Ballopedia is hiring and looking to add to our team of fast learners and creative problem solvers who are eager to work hard to make the world a better place. To learn more about our current openings, you can find them at ballopedia.org jobs or via the link in our show notes. Thanks and hope to see you here at Ballopedia. It's another edition of Footnote Facts with me, Paul Rader. Today's topic, state executives. And to lead off, here's today's trivia question. How many states do not have term limits for any of their state executives? I'll give you the answer in a few minutes. So, state executives. These are the people charged with implementing and enforcing the laws made by state legislatures. Of course, the most well-known one is governor, and all 50 states have one. There are some other offices that appear in every state as well, such as 
attorney general, superintendent of schools, and insurance commissioner, but some state executives appear in most, yet not all, of the states. Take lieutenant governors, for example, sort of the vice president of a state. Five states don't even have one, and even for the 45 that do, they could be elected separately from governors, chosen by gubernatorial candidates before or after a primary, or in the case of Tennessee and West Virginia, a state senate president becomes lieutenant governor, sort of being elected and appointed at the same time. Speaking of which, other state executives can also differ in whether they are elected or appointed. Governor is the only commonly found executive that is always elected. Some executives that are commonly but not always elected include Secretary of State, Attorney General, and the Treasurer. Executives that are much more often appointed than elected include the Superintendent of Schools and various types of commissioners such as for insurance or public service. The way that such office holders are appointed isn't always the same either. Typically, appointments are done by the governor, but there are some exceptions. Tennessee's Supreme Court appoints that state's attorney general, while in Maine, the state legislature does so. Then in New York and Rhode Island, each of those states' board of regents appoints their superintendent of schools. Because of all these differences in whether offices are appointed or elected, some states will have mostly appointed state executives, like in Alaska, where it is just governor and lieutenant governor who are elected, and some states will have a bunch of elected executives, like North Carolina, where 10 of them are elected. Talk about ballot fatigue. But the quirks don't end there. Some states have totally unique state executives that don't have a real analog to other states. In Florida, there is the chief financial officer, which back in the early 2000s, the aughts, combined several previous offices like those of treasurer and comptroller slash controller that you see in a bunch of other states. California has the board of equalization, and among that office's duties is the administering of various taxes, one of two things that are certain in this world, you know. And then one more example, one that for some reason really intrigues me, is that Arizona has a state mine inspector. I love that fact for whatever reason. Now, I've been told that I can't keep talking forever, which is good because I don't want to hear me 24-7, let alone if anyone else does. So let's get back to that trivia question I quizzed you on earlier today. The pressure is on. How many states do not have term limits for any of their state executives? And if your answer is 14, you get a gold star because that is correct. A bunch of states have term limits on all of their state executives, while other states only have them on some executives. They could be consecutive limits. They could be cumulative lifetime limits where you serve that amount and then you can't ever serve again in that office. But within states, the type of term limit doesn't differ. So, for example, if a state's governor is subject to a maximum of two consecutive terms, any other executives in that state that have term limits will also have two consecutive terms max. That's all for this episode's footnote facts. I'll have plenty more informative goodness next week. But now we send this back to our executive host, Victoria. Thanks, Paul. But I think you have to call the shots to be called an executive. So that title may be more appropriate for our editor-in-chief, Jeff Palais, and producers Cole McNeely and Frank Vesta. Shout out to you guys. Before we go, I wanted to highlight one of our newsletters for you, the Election Legislation Weekly Digest. Here are some of the noteworthy bills highlighted in the August 5th edition, all coming out of New Jersey. On July 28, 2022, Democratic Governor Phil Murphy signed into law seven separate bills making modifications to New Jersey's election administration laws. New Jersey is a Democratic trifecta, meaning that Democrats control the governorship and majorities in both chambers of the state legislature. Some of the tweaks to the Garden State's election laws include permitting minors to serve as election workers, 
opening an online portal for voters to request mail-in ballots and requiring local officials to report county deaths to better maintain voter lists. To read more about election-related legislation, go to Ballotpedia.org and find the email updates tab or use the link in our show notes to sign up for the Election Legislation Weekly Digest or to check out our other newsletters. That's all for this week's episode of On the Ballot. Thanks again to Doug and Paul for coming on the show. Make sure you don't miss an episode by subscribing wherever you listen to podcasts. If you have any questions, comments, or love for BP, feel free to send it to us at ontheballot at ballotpedia.org or on Twitter at Ballotpedia. I'm Victoria Rose, and thanks for listening. Thank you.